Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. So exciting to be able to have Chuck Klosterman here. Um, I was so pumped when I heard his new book was about villains. And um, it made me think, you know, the best books, the books that you recommend to your friends, that you think back on, that you quote, that you keep on your shelf so you can just look at them, the very best books are like friends. And um, there is something so charmingly unpretentious and open about the way Chuck Klosterman can um, talk about these strange, deep moral questions like he's just some totally cool friend of yours sitting across the counter from you with a, with a beer. And um, it's something wonderful and it's something that you don't see very often. So let's please give him a warm round of applause. Hello. Thanks for coming here tonight. There's a lot of people here. I'm very flattered by this, of course. Kind of fearful. I feel like I might not be on the top of my game tonight. I know a lot of people in Los Angeles. You know, a lot of friends here. So like, I've been spending the day like drinking beer and eating pork chops. <laughs> I think the pork chops particularly may have taken the edge off. Um, but still, we'll do what we can. We'll see if it's okay. Um, so here's how it's going to work. Okay, uh, I'm promoting this book, I Wear the Black Hat. Uh, that's what you go on book tours for. And, um, but I, I realized something or I recognize something that to me is very much true, which is it's really boring to watch a dude read in public. <laughs> I know that these are called book readings and there are many people here who like, you know, they come with the expectation, I'm going to see this reading, but I always think it's like the worst part of the event when the guy is sitting there reading. I mean, reading's supposed to be this solitary interior experience, you know? I mean, unless you're a very small child and the book is like, go, dot, go, then, you know, that would make total sense to have a dude go up here and read. So what I'm going to actually do, I'm going to read a very short section of the book and, to be totally honest, it's not even that representative of the book as a whole. Um, unless you like it. <laughs> then imagine the entire fucking book is that way. Um, so I'm going to read that, and then after that point, you know, then I'm going to go to the Q&A part, and I'm, I go to it pretty quick because 
but at this store and in fact most stores I spend you know that's the best part of the evening and it goes a long time and a lot of times I get a lot of questions now I know another thing that might be on your mind you might be thinking okay he's promoting this book he's reading from this book I want to ask a question you know I better ask it about this book because it'll be insulting if I ask him about something else you can ask about this book I don't care. You can ask about the other books. You can ask about the ethicist. You can ask about random things. You want to ask me drug questions? That happens a lot in some, particularly like if I'm like from Denver or like Portland or something, you know. Um, you want to try to out weird me? That happens a lot. Some dudes like I'm gonna out weird him. I'm gonna ask him a question about like, would you rather be, uh, you know, a person with like fingernails for hair or hair for fingernails? Somebody actually asked me that in Minneapolis. I was like talking about the craft of writing, supposedly, at this event. That was what I was there for. Some guy goes like, would you rather have fingernails for hair or hair for fingernails? I think I ended up saying like I would rather have hair for fingernails. No, I said fingernails for hair because that would be sort of like, kind of like a, like a human rhino. Whereas like hair for fingernails is a lazy werewolf. Yeah. Um, so if you want to be weird, you want to try to freak me out, go ahead. It's not going to work. You're not going to freak me out. Um, you know, oh, but I was going to say like nothing is off limits. I can't say that. I don't know what you're going to ask. Some things may be off limits, but not most things. Um, it'd be interesting to ask me about why there's a tree here. I guess I, I've been to this store before. I keep forgetting this tree is here. Is it, is it growing? Is it, is, it, is it continually bigger? What, isn't that going to be a problem at some point? <laughs> Like, this is not good planning, you know? Uh, okay. Okay, so now I'm going to read from this book. I'm going to, uh, and I uh, hope you enjoy it. It's kind of like a more narrative section, so it will seem like it's going somewhere. <laughs> like I say, it's not like the rest of the book. Um, it's called, a section called, The Problem of Overrated Ideas. Thanks again for coming. Okay. <laughs> writing about other people is a form of writing about oneself. This isn't true for everyone, but it's true for me. Why pretend? In 2004, I wrote a column for Esquire magazine that was headlined, The Importance of Being Hated. It was the kind of piece that was sort of funny and sort of true, and the combination of those two qualities somehow metabolized and made the funny parts funnier and the true parts super true. The crux of the essay dealt with the difference between a nemesis and an arch enemy. Not many people remember this column, but if they do, and if they want to talk to me about it, they inevitably remember the last half of one specific paragraph. This is that paragraph. I've had the same archenemy since 8th grade. He's a guy named Rick Helling, and he grew up in Lakota, North Dakota. I'm also from North Dakota. <laughs> Last year, Helling pitched a few innings for the Florida Marlins in the World Series. In 1998, he won 20 games for the Texas Rangers. I went to basketball camp with Rick Helling in 1985, and he was the single worst person I'd ever met. <laughs> Every summer, I constantly scanned the sports section of USA Today, always hoping that he got shelled. This is what drives me. I cannot live in a world where Helling's career ERA hovers below 5.0, yet all I do for a living is type. As long as Rick Helling walks this earth, I shall never sleep soundly. Now, the reason this is sort of funny is because it's idiotic, and I'm sort of positioning myself in the role of idiot. It obviously makes no sense to hate someone I knew for only one week 
20 years ago. I truly, I never truly knew Rick Helling at all, and even if I had, I knew him when he was an 8th grader. It's also more than coincidental that the person I elected to classify as my archenemy is the only Major League Baseball player I ever happened to encounter as an adolescent. <laughs> but the reason it's sort of true is because it's sort of true. I have never gotten over what a sublime jerk Rick Helling was during that week at basketball camp. I still think about it today. He shot three-pointers constantly and never passed to anyone. He was physically stronger than every kid his age, yet aspired to be a point guard and refused to play under the basket. This drove me especially crazy as I envied his size and power. It's always weird to read that line. I feel like it's a little bit like Fifty Shades of Grey-like. Yeah, his size and power, I envy it, yeah? And then, of course, that gets weirder with the next sentence. He was obsessed with talking about sex, which I suppose made him a normal eighth grader, but which I found disturbing. I was very Catholic. Um, he constantly complained about the officiating and totally ignored the advisement of our coach. Mainly, he was an egocentric bully. One afternoon, the camp directors created a two-on-two -two tournament, and they tried to make all the teams as equal as possible. They paired Rick with some microscopic rich kid, who was probably only at camp because his parents wanted him out of the house. I remember that the kid always wore a massive wristwatch, even during games, and looked like he'd spent the last six months recovering from cancer in rural Ethiopia. <laughs> I doubt if he secured one rebound that entire week. But Helling was so goddamn good, it didn't matter. The kid with the wristwatch would just pass him the ball immediately and watch Helling play two-on-one. They made it all the way to the title game of this tournament, only to lose by a basket. At which point, Helling punted the ball into the rafters and started stomping toward his pipsqueak teammate like a grizzly bear gorged on bath salts. <laughs> Had the cap counselors not interfered, that child was destined for the morgue, although he would at least he would have known the exact time of his death. <laughs> when I think about Rick Helling, these are the things I think about. It's the reason I ambushed him in Esquire, despite the fact that, A, I didn't really care that any of this had happened, and B, I was pretty confident that Rick Helling had no memory of who I was. Now, something weird happened immediately after that column was published. While pitching in a spring training game against the Phillies, a line drive hit Helling in the, le in the leg and broke his fibula. I felt terrible about this, specifically because I'd written the sentence, as long as Rick Helling walks the earth, I shall never sleep soundly. <laughs> I certainly didn't believe I had cosmically caused this injury, but I didn't like that I had expressed a desire for a man to cease walking just before his leg shattered. It was not the type of irony I was looking for. My obsession with Helling had always been semi-performative, but now it seemed sick. I decided to just stop thinking about Rick Helling entirely. This was not difficult, particularly after his 2007 retirement. But then, in 2009, I happened to be reading an issue of Time Magazine. I think I was waiting to see the dentist. The, the magazine was running an excerpt from The Yankee Years, Joe Torre's book written with Tom Verducci. The piece was headlined, The Man Who Warned Baseball About Steroids. To my horror, I realized the man they were referring to 
was Rick Helling. <laughs> For all practical purposes, Helling will be remembered as the first player in Major League Baseball to take a meaningful stand against performance-enhancing drugs. The year was 1998. Baseball was spiking in popularity, mostly due to the explosion of home runs by Mark McGuire, who'd hit 70 that summer, and Sammy Sosa, who'd hit 66. Though it seems insane in retrospect, no one wanted to admit that this uptick in power was unnatural. Except, evidently, Rick Helling. <laughs> at that winter's Players Union meeting, Helling, who's only 27 years old at the time, stood up and said, There's this problem with steroids. It's happening. It's real. And it's so prevalent that guys who aren't doing it are feeling pressure because they're falling behind. It's not a level playing field. We've got to figure out a way to address this. It's one thing to be a cheater, to be somebody who doesn't care whether it's right or wrong. But it's another thing when other guys feel like they have to do it just to keep up. Nobody paid any attention to his ideas, so he delivered the same speech the following year. And he made it the year after that, and the year after that, and the year after that. And nobody cared, until they all did. <laughs> Helling had a nice career as a player. He had like 93 career wins, a little over 1,000 strikeouts. But this was his real achievement. This is why he'll be justifiably remembered by baseball historians. They will remember him as a truth pioneer. So, here's my life. <laughs> the one person I am on record for hating is the first baseball player on record for taking a public stand against anabolic steroids. <laughs> I've tried to rationalize my way out of this reality. I've reversed my position on steroids many times. <laughs> I've tried to imagine that Helling's speech was grandstanding or that it's the typical behavior of a narcissistic personality. But I can't unread that book excerpt. Here's Helling's final quote, spoken as a retired activist, lodged in the article's penultimate paragraph. Anybody who knows me knows there was no doubt that I played it the right way. And that's what I wanted to leave the game with. I couldn't care less if I made $1 million or $100 million, whether I won one game or whether I won 300 games. I was in it to be honest to myself and to my teammates, and to be a good father and a good husband. <laughs> For me, it was just the way I was brought up. <laughs> Those words make me think many things. <laughs> However, they mainly make me think one thing. He's lying. <laughs> I don't believe what he says, even though he has no reason to fabricate any of it. I just can't see him as good. So I read those words again, and I read them again, and I read them again. I continue to absorb them as lies. I see them as small lies inside of a larger lie. I try to make them what I want them to be. And eventually, a feeling creeps over my shoulders and up my neck. It's a feeling I've felt my whole life, and it's a feeling I know I will have forever. In my own story, I am the villain. Rick Helling is not a bad guy because of what I remember from 1985. I am a bad guy because I remember it and because it informs how I think about everything else. I know it's wrong and I do it anyway. I do it consciously. 
I have the ability to think about this person in a thousand different contexts, yet I prefer keeping my mind unchanged. I can see every alternative reality, but I prefer to arbitrarily create my own. I know the truth, but I just don't care. <laughs> you know, it's natural to think about one's own life as a novel, or a movie, or a play. And within that narrative, we are always the central character. Thoughtful people try to overcome this compulsion, but they usually fail. In fact, trying usually makes it worse. In a commencement speak at, a speech at Kenyon College, David Foster Wallace argued that conquering the preoccupation with self is pretty much the whole objective of being alive. But if we were to believe Wallace succeeded at this goal, it must be the darkest success imaginable. <laughs> I'm far less confident than David Foster Wallace. I don't think it's feasible, and I think, I think people can pretend to do it, but they can't pretend to themselves. I have slowly come to believe that overcoming this self-focused worldview is impossible, and that life can be experienced only through an imaginary mirror that allows us to occupy the center of a story no one is telling. I don't think the human mind is capable of getting outside of that box, and I'm not even sure if this limitation is particularly problematic. I never feel weird about being the main character in the non-transferable, non-existent movie of my life. That's totally fine. What makes me nervous is a growing suspicion that this movie is fucked up and devoid of meaning. <laughs> the auteur is a nihilist. What if I'm the main character, but still not the protagonist? What if there is no protagonist? What if there's just an uninteresting person thinking about himself because there's nothing else to think about? I wear the plaid hat. Thank you. Uh, now, like I said in the beginning, and this is true, that's not really like how most of the book is. Most of the, you know, when I had the initial vision for this book, it was going to be, you know, like a 500-page, super comprehensive, like analytical dissection of the concept of villainy. I had all these obstructions built in. I was not going to use any memoir material. Um, I was not going to use any swear words. I was not going to use any footnotes. I had all these ideas. And then, of course, it ended up being like all my books. It's short, mostly about me. It's kind of like weird at times, you know. <laughs> you know, okay, so like we asked, what else is in this book? Well, you know, like there's a section in this book about like the Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky situation. And there's a section in this book about like WikiLeaks and Perez Hilton and, and, and the idea of how technology informs the concept of a villain. There's O.J. Simpson is in this book, you know. Um, there's a long section on the Eagles. Um, <laughs> like the band, okay? Not, you know, it's not like Eagles, you know? It's like, I like Falcons. I hate Eagles. No, sorry. Um, you know, so it's like that, okay. And it's really interesting, you know? So I, tr I have this, I, and this just illustrates to me how, like, futile all this is, you know? It's like, okay, my first books, the first two books I wrote, one was called Fugger Rock City. That was about, like, growing up in the Midwest and listening to hair metal, like listening to Guns N' Roses and Faster Pussycat and, you know, Bang Tango and stuff. Second book was Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs. That was about, like, you know, like this, about, like, Saved by the Bell and John Cusack and Serial and all this stuff. So I wrote those two books, right? 
and they come out and I kind of feel like they're totally chock full of ideas. Like I'm really commenting on sort of the, like the modern way people absorb culture and sort of like the meaning of self and all these things. But of course I do interviews or I do these things and people are like, so like, do you think Wasp got better when Blackie Lawless changed? You know, it's like, like they would just ask me questions about rock bands and about like, you know, how much I really like the Pamela Anderson sex tape and stuff. So I'm like all bummed out, right? You know, I'm like, oh, they're not taking these ideas seriously, you know? So I go through all these moves. Now I'm in my eighth book. And I still feel like, you know, I'm writing about kind of the same kind of ideas, but now the topics are like Hitler and Stalin and stuff. So these questions are like, you know, what is the nature of evil and all these things? And I'm like, oh, hey, man, I'm just being funny. You know, be cool. You know? <laughs> so like the, 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 the engagement with culture is the same. It's just that the content dictates everything. When the content is like the band Rat, People think, oh, it must be meaningless. You know, it must be just be like you know popcorn or whatever. And then when you know the the, the Machiavelli's the subject, they're sort of like, I must now ask you what justice is. You know, um, <laughs> and what does this tell us? Well, it tells us basically like I'm a jerk. Whatever you ask me about, I'm gonna be pissed off. But uh, <laughs> but still, you're here. I want to answer questions. I like doing it. So let's do it. Like, give me questions on anything. <laughs> that dude. So my wife and I, we were uh, driving somewhere the other day and on serious radio, the lithium station, the new Pearl Jam song came on. And it really sucks. <laughs> I was wondering if you had a theory on why there seems to be like a finite amount of time in which someone shows an aptitude to uh, songwriting or musicianship and then it just is like a steep decline after that. <laughs> like, I mean, it's the wrong step. No, I know what you're saying. Okay, what he's basically asking is like, He's listening to the lithium station on Sirius, which is always interesting to me. It's like they picked this one Nirvana song. That's the meaning of alternative rock now, but I guess it is. And he says there's a new Pearl Jam song. Didn't even know there was a new Pearl Jam song. And he is saying, like, why does it seem that these people have this ability to have, you know, to, to do, you know, make this art and all of a sudden it drops off a cliff? Well, you know, one thing that I think that is important to realize is that when you're listening to, say, like, Eddie Vedder now, or Mike McCready now, or, or, you know, Stone Gossard, any of those guys, and you go back and you listen to 10 or Verses or whatever, you know, they have the same names, and they are biologically the same person, but they're really not the same person. I mean, how much of you is similar to the person you were 15 years ago. Do you have the same ideas? Do you have the same interests? Do you have the same skills? Probably not. But what's different about being an artist is that when you do work, it calcifies and galvanizes in time. And your idea of what Pearl Jam is, is what they began as. Now, you don't feel that way about your friends. How old are you? 32. 32. So if you run into a guy from high school and you ask him about something you liked in high school and he's like, I'm not really into that anymore, you don't go like, oh man, you're, you've fallen off a cliff, man. It's like, you know, <laughs> you assume that of course, well, he evolved too. And you know, Pearl Jam is evolving. Now, the, the band you loved, the Pearl Jam you loved, um, they're not that band anymore. And it actually is unrealistic sort of to have that expectation. And also, for the artists themselves, they are the, like, the worst judge of their own work. Like, you know, to me, it seems like this book is the best book I've written in terms of the writing, okay? But don't ask me. I mean, how would, I mean, t the world at large gets to decide that. Paul McCartney thinks Flaming Pie is better than all the Beatles records, okay? Like, Aerosmith thinks what they're doing now is better than their first four records, you know? And they're not lying. 
they're not just saying it, to, it seems like they're just trying to sell their new product, but they actually feel that way because it's closer to who they are. Paul McCartney does not have a relationship to the person he was in 1964. He looks at a picture of himself, and it's as distant as you looking at a baby picture. So when you're asking, like, why did Pearl Jam drop off? You know, they didn't. They just became something that is dissimilar to the thing you liked. If what they were doing now was the first thing they heard, we wouldn't be having this discussion because you would have never liked them in the first place. Okay, I didn't expect you to. Yeah. I have to preface this by saying, I don't know what you're going to ask. <laughs> Is there actually a person that you're okay with saying, this person is totally fucking evil? Okay, that's a very good question. Am I comfortable saying someone is totally fucking evil? Okay, because in this book, not in totality, but in many ways. It is an attempt to take a more sympathetic, more empathetic view uh, toward characters, both you know, fictional and non-fictional, who are sort of marginalized as being wholly bad or whatever. Well now, this is a tricky question, because if I say no, then the follow-up question would be like, so you like Hitler, huh? <laughs> is Hitler wholly bad? Well, certainly the manifestation of his life is wholly bad. There was a book that came out you know, a few years ago called Explaining Hitler. The cover of Explaining Hitler is a baby picture of Hitler. There are some people, very high profile people, who were very upset about that photograph, that image, because they sort of argued that any attempt to sort of make people see a person like Hitler in a real, vulnerable, fragile, gentle, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, untyrannical way is, uh, is bad for the culture, because it sort of allows this escapist idea that he can escape from this continuum of evil by saying, well, he was a good person once. But I kind of disagree with that. I think it's really important to do that. I mean, the people who I think are wholly evil are not really the people in this book. Some people in my life I feel that way about. But that's an emotional reaction. I know I'm not being objective. The people in this book I'm able to sort of think about from a detached, sort of distant view, you know? And in that sense, it is my goal to attempt to think of these things in a way that gives the person the most amount of room to be socially, not, if not meaningful, not detrimental. Now, do I have my own feelings about these things? Of course I do. Of course there's, there's some people that I can't get outside of myself and not see as totally evil. Um, but when you're trying to write like this in a, you know, in a somewhat journalistic, critical way, you know, the job is to get outside of that. There's a section in this book, which is speaking of Hitler again, like Lars von Trier uh, talked about, about being able to, like he sort of understands Hitler in some way. And he got kicked out of the Cannes Film Festival, and like, some people will never forgive him for this. But you know, that's a director's job, to see things from a perspective that is distant from yourself. And the further that distance is, the more impressive the achievement is. So I guess if I really have to answer your question, I guess the answer is no, um, but that's an intellectual thing. Like if I talked emotionally, it wouldn't be that way. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on Jesus. You specifically like Kanye is kind of the villain. He's, I mean, now he's just embracing it, especially with like I am a god. So I just wanted to get your take on it. So I think you tweeted something about it. Well, I talked about it on a podcast uh, for ESPN. Okay. 
Um, and I think in people, you know, it's like it's kind of the record of the moment. So I get asked about. It. I mean, I'll I'll just I don't want to go too deep into this because it would kind of. Th but I think I've I've been more into that record than any record probably in almost ten years. I think the last record I liked as much or cared about as much was Separation Sunday by The Hold Steady. And the reason I think it's so interesting is partially because of the content what's on the record. It's good record, you know, he's, he's a talented musician. But my larger idea is that I think at all times in culture, in any idiom of art, there is somebody who is moving along the same path as everyone, but parallel to it. In other words, they're using the same tools, they're working in the same, with the same mechanisms, with the same ideas, the, sort of the same structure, but somehow it is separate. In film, I feel like P.T. Anderson is doing that now. That he's not making films that are super experimental, they're not like dissimilar to the films that are alongside it, but he is working in a different sort of intellectual space. I feel like Louis C.K. is doing that in comedy right now. That he's sort of performing in the same way as stand-up comedian always has, but there's something different by the way that he's sort of tapping into a vulnerability in himself and sort of an emotional center of himself and reflecting it back in a way that's really jarring to people. And I feel like Kanye West is doing that right now. I feel like he's different than every other artist, not just because of the work he's doing, but his awareness of himself and how that work is being perceived. And that's a really pretty rare thing, that somebody is totally consumed by what they're doing, how it's you know being absorbed, and just by chance, also doing work that's great. I feel like Lou Reed was doing that in the early 70s. Um, I feel like uh, like Axl Rose was doing that in about 1991. And of course, what's interesting is the culture will change. Like for Axl Rose, for example, the culture has changed and he seems buffoonish now. But there's going to be a period in about 20 years when people are going to rediscover how sort of amazing that creative period for him was. The culture is going to change against Kanye West at some point. And because he is so arrogant and egocentric and really, I mean, he has all the negative qualities of a villainous person, the culture is going to move away with him. And if his work steps out of favor, he's going to see idiotic and then it's going to be 30 years before people recognize that this was like a kind of a meaningful point in pop music like I think this is a very important record or as important as a record can be I mean yeah yeah so um, I'm a really big fan of your sports writing thanks and, uh, and uh, one of the things that's sort of compelling to me about sports is sort of the pathological need to have to have villains people to root against yeah well I mean the construction of sports creates a problem for this villainy issue because sports are built for us to hate other people and like other people. That if you live in Cincinnati, you can just arbitrarily hate the Steelers. You can just do that. You know, it's expected. You know? Um, if you live in Boston, you can hate the Yankees and you can hate, you know, all this stuff. Yeah. So every once in a while, though, a figure goes outside of that, kind of transcends that relationship. And LeBron James was like that. Okay? LeBron James did something that uh, was viewed by sort of the unconnected sports populace as um, being a betrayal of what he had once espoused to be what he represented, which is that he was from Akron, played for the, you know, the, for the, the Cavs, he stayed local, all these things. It was almost as though he was, he gave the, the impression of being someone who was predestined to come from this place to save this same place from their failure. And then he was like, nope, you know what, I'm not going to do that. And in fact, I'm going to make a big show of this move. That he seemed to have lost his relationship to what people liked about him. Now, because it's sports though, 
he performs well, they start winning championships, it all swings back, you know? I mean, I don't know if this is really answering your question. I mean, it's interesting you asked that question right after the one previous to it because there were some essays that I did not write for this book because I felt like the individuals were still evolving. One was Lindsay Lohan. I was going to write about her. But I, was, I actually had this fear she might die before this book comes out. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's funny, but it's true. I was like, it's going to really be weird if I make jokes about Lindsay Lohan and, like, she dies at the end of May or whatever. What am I going to do? I was also going to do an essay about LeBron James and Kanye West, but I thought to myself, you know, this is, that would make sense in a magazine in the present tense. You know, but the idea of a book is that you're writing in the present tense about ideas that theoretically will make sense in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. So I didn't write anything about this. I mean, I kind of wish I would have. I think it would have, but, but, uh, I guess in a larger sense, I'm glad I didn't, because I would have been wrong, partially about the way I would have perceived LeBron now, as opposed to, say, last November, and I definitely would have been wrong about Kanye West. Up until this point, I was kind of underrating him. Can you talk about what you thought about the Rolling Stone cover that was released today with the Boston Marathon bomber on the Okay, yeah, I, I, you know, I wasn't really following the news today. I was flying around. Apparently, the guy, the, the kind of the, the, the guy who looks like a member of the Strokes who blew up this, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, is he shirtless? No, he is not shirtless. But, uh, okay, can you can you give me a sense of okay? Are people outraged for a predictable reason or unpredictable reason? Are people pre are outraged because they say that they're he's, they're glorifying a guy and it's going to cause people to say to themselves, "This is a, the reward for this." I think it's the same reason that they talk about the um, uh, like people don't mention the names of school shooters. They don't want to celebritize uh, uh, this guy and what he did and make him look yes glamorous and good looking. Well, you know, I, I haven't haven't seen this cover, I guess, you know, that would tell me a lot, especially if, like, the cover line was, like, hot new terrorist, I guess that would be problematic. <laughs> but for the most part, you know, it's like, why is Rolling Stone important? It's partially for their coverage of music, that is true, they began the idea of, of rock magazines, but at this point, when you really think of what's meaningful about Rolling Stone, it tends to be their political coverage, and not Matt Tiabi, but their stories, like, about the, mil you know, that, that they sometimes will do a story, not that I'm criticizing Matt Tiabi, I'm just saying that, that they do some re political reporting that is really meaningful, uh, and that that the idea, like, how can you not argue that this guy isn't an important figure in the news? And is it really reasonable to say that someone will look at a cover of a magazine and see someone and say, like, I'm going to commit a terrorist act to get on the cover of this magazine? Now, when I ask that question hypothetically, it almost seems to indicate, like I'm saying, of course not. Well, maybe. Maybe somebody would. But, you know... Uh, it's the responsibility of publications to reflect the reality in which we exist and that this is a meaningful story and the fact that he's this young, impressionable guy who seems like he was basically molded by his brother into doing this situation which has a meaning outside of the actual violence as the idea of safety and, and security of living in a, in, you know, the, you know, the, the, the uh, good manifestation of how prior to 9-11, the idea of domestic violence the, that, you know, was kind of off the map and now it's all changed and whenever we see these scenarios, it really brings it to the forefront. So, I mean, I, I, don't, I can't really comment on something I haven't seen, but I'm guessing I would say, this is interesting. The, the Boston mayor uh, I wrote a letter admonishing Rolling Stone. I guess it's all right before I got to hear about, about the cover as well, which was. Yeah, but I mean, the people are. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I have a question, and I feel like you're the perfect person to answer. Nah, I doubt that, but let's try. <laughs> you know, in this day and age, our concept of comedy has evolved to a place where we often make fun of things that are 
considered very dark, often offensive subjects outside of that context. And it makes me wonder, you know, in a way we're portraying them in a sense where it's like we're taking the gravity out of it, we're making it something where it's more okay to talk about it when it's comedic. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I can't help but wonder when we joke about things like rape, when we joke about things like guns, like any of these dark topics, when we strip them of that gravity, does it perpetuate the cycle of making them okay? Well, I mean, okay, first of all, that's a good question, but also, like, you could have asked that question in 1955 in a weird way. Like, th this question has always existed. This idea of whatever the important comedy at any given era was, the, the problem always was, um, is this something that warrants to be laughed at? Does somebody have the right to take something that destroys someone's life and sort of use that in many ways for their personal gain and in a, I guess, in an abstract sense um, to make people feel more comfortable with terrible things. Yeah. In other words, what you're really asking is if someone makes a rape joke, okay, and it's actually like, it's, it's so funny that people can't help but laugh, is that somehow taking away the, the, the terror that would give to one person by sort of making it a different thing. It's not really a, it's no longer about the act but about the idea of it. Um, uh, you know, decriminalize. yeah, well, it doesn't decriminalize it, but it, it, do, it does change the meaning, you know. Um, this was a big, you know, uh, I made a reference to 9-11 earlier, but, you know, I, uh, I did a story for the newspaper I was at in Ohio right after 9-11 happened about the first comedian, local comedian, who used 9-11 material in his, uh, you know, his routine. This was about four months after it happened. And we got a, just like an avalanche of letters, you know. Well, now, of course, the idea of someone making a 9-11 joke, that's not really off the table. It seems odd that it was ever off the table. But it was then because, you know, it had a, uh, you know, a temporary meaning, you know. Rape is a little different. It's like a universal thing. I guess, in the, for the most part, this is my standard because... But I write about this a little bit in the book. Typically when somebody, say like Daniel Tosh or somebody, makes a joke and, um, and someone criticizes it and is upset by it, typically one of their arguments is, you know, uh, it's just not funny. Like it's just not, you know, it's not funny to do that. But what people are really saying is it's not funny enough. Because if someone makes a joke about something abhorrent, but it's so funny that you chuckle and everybody here chuckles, you're having a natural, I mean, we can't control whether or not we find something funny or not. There is sort of a biological imperative there, you know. If that happens, can it still be offensive, okay? And I think that's the wrong standard. To me, the standard should be this. Something should be off limits if, in a comedic setting, if anyone says it, no matter who they are, that it would not seem funny. If somebody has the potential to use language and have it react in a way that makes someone amused, we should just sort of look at it where it actually is, is like, you know, problematic dialogue of kind of neutral value. I mean, I guess for the most part, I tend to fall on the side of, uh, you know, like, I'm not, like, I used to be like a real free speech absolutist. I don't know if I'm still like that, but I'm probably close to that. I'm not really answering this question. It's maybe too hard for me. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. I total. I actually get what you're saying. Um, you were being, you know, quite clear about it. I think, but in a way, to me, I think when you take it in a way where, like, 
young kids are now being exposed Yeah, don't go there. I just, I'll just fuck, don't worry about the kids. No way. That's stupid. We can't look at things and say, like, something is dangerous because a kid isn't ready for it. Kids aren't ready for lots of things. You know, we, we have to, like, I want to live in an adult world. So we're not going to cut things off because it's harmful to children to me. Like, you know, I, I know that seems like callous, but, you know, I, I think that, it, it, like it is it just to say to yourself that something has to be eliminated from the culture or has to be held without the culture because a kid might see it um, I, I just I don't agree with that I understand I mean if you you know if there was a little kid here I would feel uncomfortable saying fuck or whatever you know I understand that um, but like the kid shouldn't be here for that like I'm not a kid's author you know? yeah, okay that's a good question though I'm not, I'm not belittling your question I just disagree with it whenever, whenever someone says an argument and it's like think about the children I'm like do not think about the children <laughs> Well, I, I missed the beginning part of this. If you're thinking ideas that may be decades in advance of what the culture is ready for, but it is um, an idea set that helps the culture, what do you feel your responsibility is towards the ideas and communicating them across to the culture? Um, what are my responsibilities? I think my responsibilities to me are to create work that I feel comfortable with um, and, um, hmm. <laughs> That's, I mean, I don't, I don't feel, you know, I, I don't, okay, I, I'm going to have the, I'm the ethicist for the New York Times, right? It's a job I got. I'm the ethicist. Okay. Now, interestingly, people view that in some respects as, oh, I'm arguing that I'm the most ethical person in New York or whatever. I don't look at it that way. I look at it as like when it, there's a problem that doesn't directly involve me so that I have no emotional investment. I can think of this problem as a detached third party and I can say what a rational ethical person would do. I'm not saying I would do that if I was in that situation because I would have an emotional investment. So when I write these books, I'm trying to do three things. I'm trying to be entertaining, I'm trying to be interesting, and I'm trying to be clear. I'm trying to be entertaining in the sense that if someone reads the book, they have an enjoyable experience. The time that they spend with it is positive to them. It's not work. Okay? I try to be interesting in the sense that if I'm talking about the world, I want them to think about the world differently or about themselves differently. I'm not trying to persuade them to think like me at all. I would not like to live in a world where everyone thinks like me. But I want people to say like, hey, I thought about this way in this context, and now I think it's slightly different. And I want to be clear in the sense that writing is a communicative art, so I want people to understand what I was trying to say. Um, to me, that's where my responsibility is at. Like, I am not, I don't, I, I don't view myself as having enough social import to be um, uh, responsible for how people, you know, I, you can't, you, okay, it's a compl complicated thing, okay, okay. There's Ozzy Osbourne song, Suicide Solution, right, okay? Well, some kids listen to Suicide Solution, and uh, they killed themselves, they committed suicide. Now, Suicide Solution is actually a song written by Ozzy Osbourne's bass player about Bon Scott, the lead singer of ACDC, drinking himself to death. Okay? It's not about, it doesn't tell people to commit suicide. Now, on one hand, it is called Suicide Solution. Okay? It's, like, I can see where a kid would be confused by the title Suicide Solution, you know? But, I gotta say, I think Ozzy made a good argument about this. He was sort of like, you know, if, first of all, my argument is that if, you're, if you care about a song enough to kill yourself about it, you should at least read the liner notes, too. You know? Because, I mean, if you're going to make that kind of a commitment. But the other thing is, and this is kind of what Ozzy said, he's like, I can't be responsible for people who misinterpret what I say. Now, I know there's nothing in my book that is indicating people to act in a way um, that is really socially problematic. Now, I've written about drug use. I would hate the idea if some 
10-year-old kid reads one of my books and says, like, I love this book. I'm going to start doing drugs. But that's not my intent. That's not in the book. I hope he doesn't read it that way, but I can't control people misinterpreting messages. You know, If you start thinking to yourself, I have to be wary of how people will be confused by this, you just can't be an artist. Not that I'm some great artist, but like I'm writing. I guess that's an art. You know? Yeah. How do you feel about uh, the culture's relationship you know, that's a, I mean, how culture's relationship to villainy has changed over time, that's a, I mean, that's a great, if this was a, was a comprehensive book, I'd probably handle that issue. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, you know, I, I, can, I, can, I can comment on this. I mean, when you look at it in a fictional sense, um, the trajectory is pretty clear. Like, you know, uh, it seems as though, for whatever reason, well, I, I think I know the reason, people associate bad behavior with realism. And then a negative character, a villain, seems more realistic than heroic character. You look at literature, 18th century, 19th century, you see this already. There are books where there's the idea the anti-hero exists. Okay, get into the 20th century, 70s, early 70s, the auteur movement in film. That's when you start seeing like The Godfather and that period of Jack Nicholson movies where you know suddenly the good characters were not wholly good the way they would have been in the 50s. Rock music and hip hop, 70s, 80s, 90s, very clear that it suddenly became an association with the rock performer to to sort of be almost an antisocial character. It finally happened in television in the 90s with The Sopranos, you know. And now if you're making a high-end television show, whether it's Breaking Bad or Mad Men or the why or all these things? Um, it is. It would be viewed as very childish to have the heroic person be like a, almost like a, a naive, wholly good person. So what we've seen in art is over time that realism and villainy um, are associated. Now, why is that? I think it's because when people see a heroic person, um, they imagine that as an aspirational character. When they see a villainous character, they see themselves in it. Even if they're not doing the things that are as bad as that character, they they, they question their own motive and their own intent. So I think that what has changed about our culture is that the idea of bad people uh, are now seen as the more authentic people. And that's kind of, you know, is that good or bad? Well, it could be bad, but I, I think it's how it is. But take two more questions. Back there. Uh, somebody. <laughs> What do I think is the future of print, particularly books? Well, I have, you know, I, I guess I have two answers to that, okay? Uh, one will be very optimistic for the people in this store, and one will not, okay? <laughs> On the one hand, you know, books are different than almost all other forms of physical media in the sense that people put them in their house almost like animals they have shot. <laughs> That when someone comes into your living room and they see, oh, you've read Infinite Jest and you've read, you know, Ulysses and stuff, it says something about the person in a way nothing else does. I mean, forever. It doesn't matter what happens with the with the way you know literature is you know transmitted. The idea of being well read will always be something people put on like their dating profiles. You know, it means something to read books, and because of that, people's physical relationships to books um, are. You know, even if they become art objects, like the book industry will be able to survive. The price of books will go up, and the books you buy will change. But you know, in that regard, it does seem like they have a meaning that goes outside of the words. Here's the other thing, though. You know, I used to have like 4,000 CDs, and uh, my wife was like, 
get rid of these CDs, digitize them, you know? And I was like, no, I like looking at them, you know? I like having, I like having these, I like having them, I want them, you know? I, I've spent all this money and all this time collecting them. And she's like, we're getting rid of them when we move. And we did. <laughs> we got rid of all these CDs, you know? And by this point, you know, I, it was like 2010 or something, so I, I got like 10 bucks for every 500 CDs or whatever, you know? <laughs> but you know what I realized? I don't miss them at all. I don't care. Turns out what I liked was music, not round metal discs. I didn't give a, I didn't care about these discs anymore. They meant nothing to me when they were gone. And I wonder sometimes, do I like books or do I like words? And if I like words, why do I need books? And I don't know if that's, I wonder if, I wonder if I'm going to be different in some way, that, that this is going to be like the Rubicon to me and I won't cross it, but I don't think so. I have this sneaking suspicion that when I get rid of all my books, I won't care. But until I do that, I do. <laughs> um, I'm interested in what you think about the way society seems to be uh, acting towards the George Zimmerman trial. Okay. Yeah. He's asking me about the George Zimmerman trial. Well, okay. As you might, I mean, I'm not surprised you're asking me this question. Every tour stop I've done, I've been asked this question, you know, particularly because I write about Bernard Goetz in this book. Okay. So, you know, the vigilantes uh, pose another very complicated issue for the concept of villainy, okay? Because here's the deal. If you go to an intellectual, sophisticated person, I'm sure it must be you with that Primus shirt. Yeah, it's like... <laughs> That's a really cool shirt, actually. I have to say, it's like, yeah, 2012. Oh my God. Okay, okay, um, okay. So, okay. So, if I talk to you or Les Claypool about this, um, for, you know, the, as the person will say, like, you know, if you say, like, hey. Uh, is, is vigilante justice okay? And you'll go like, well, no. It's like there's got to be due process. You can't let people just go out and decide. You know, I'm going to kill someone, or uh, you know, like we have a we have an ethic, a framework. We don't, you know, vigilante justice is bad. But then an event happens, and we have very little information. All we know, stay with Bernard Getz, is that. In a crime-ridden city, a virtual cesspool of violence, a man was sitting on the subway, and three guys came up to him and threatened him, and he shot him, and he escaped. People are sort of like, well, that's good. It's <laughs> like, you know, I can, I can immediately relate to this, and they, they inject that scenario with how they would feel if they're in that given situation. Suddenly, in, in, the, in the less abstract but unspecific, the vigilante is acceptable. But then Bernard Getz comes forward, and he says things like, ah, shooting those guys was easier than typing. And he was like, I'd have shot him more if I had more bullets. And then it turns out at a community meeting a little bit before this, you know, a couple years before, he made all these racist comments. Then we find out that he lives on the Upper West Side with a bunch of squirrels, because he's a squirrel advocate. Okay? <laughs> then it doesn't seem like he's working as an agent for society. Now he seems individual again. And if the individual is going out there and making decisions, we're not comfortable with it. So in the broadest sense, it's bad. In the smaller sense, where it's like someone against everyone, maybe good, then when it's individual, it's bad again. Now, people ask me, how does like Zimmerman compare to this case? And I'm always reticent to talk about this because, you know what, I know I could give a very easy answer and you'd all clap and you'd all cheer and I fucking hate shit like that. You know? But the fact of the matter is, is like, he's not really a vigilante, he pursued a kid. 
okay? Like he actively pursued a kid. That's not what a vigilante does, okay? Now, here's the problem. The problem is not, you know, it, 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 it's that the way our legal system is constructed, and I think if you take out George Zimmerman from this equation and we just talk about this in a large sense, if there is a murder and only two people witness it and one person is dead, so we only have one story, it's very hard to convict that person. Okay? And I think most people, especially liberal-minded people, would be like, that is how the court system has to work. It has to work. On, it has to be geared toward the defendant. Okay? So now when this real situation comes up, though, and we see these real terms, and it becomes very uncomfortable. Like, I have an idea of what happened, and if I said, like, what I think happened, I think everybody would probably clap. But the fact of the matter is, I don't know exactly what happened, you know? So we just sort of have to live in this world where this tragic thing happened, but the way society is constructed, you can't really enforce this law. You know, and what ends up happening is when people talk about it, and anybody who's on Twitter or Facebook realizes this, it's like people's reaction to this case really isn't about the specific details of what happened. It's about their pre-existing political views. Like all the people I follow on Twitter and Facebook who have reacted to this, I've been surprised by none of them. <laughs> like there hasn't been one person who was like, well, you'd think I'd think this, but I think that no one's like that, right? Um, you know, so I mean, it's, this is a terrible, tragic thing that happened, but like, I was not surprised by the, uh, by the outcome, because you know, what, what, the, what the defense was basically doing is just bringing up hypothetical scenarios. And then, you know, they'd be like, well, what if he was on top of him, or what if he pursued him? And then, of course, the prosecution would go like, but we don't think that happened, but that sort of planted the idea of the possibility. And if you keep planting false possibilities to people, they start becoming just a fraction real, and because it's a whole thing built on, like, reasonable doubt, it really comes down to a debate over the word reasonable. So, I don't know, those are my thoughts. I mean, not very insightful, but that's what they are. Um, I'll take one more. Okay. So, uh, Entertainment Weekly recently put out the list of top 100 everything. Mm -hmm. And it seemed like um, movies were all classics, mostly, and television was mostly modern. Um, they could throw in a few here and there modern looks in the movies. Is, is there something to that other than TV's just getting better? Or is it more that we have trouble making movies that are made now great? It's the latter, because I mean, the thing is, most of the movies they talk about happened from 1969 to 1977, and that was the height of the auteur movement with the idea of one person's vision being the totality of the movie, and then they would just hire people around them who would basically fill in their projection of what a movie would be. So it was much more a singular idea, which meant there's a greater chance for a movie to be bad, but a much greater chance for a movie to be great. When Star Wars, and to an extent Jaws and stuff, came into play, and people realized that there was so much money to be made in films, and the key to making a really successful film is to get the kind of kid, mostly a teenage male, to go to a movie 14 or 15 times. It took away sort of the autonomy, because it was like getting a bunch of people together to figure out whatever formula made people go to repeat viewings. Television has kind of worked the other way. For the longest time, um, it never occurred to people that TV could be transcendent. Then all of a sudden it was, and now the problem is that you know, you watch a show like The Bridge or even The Americans. These people are going into these shows with the idea that we want to be The Wire or we want to be Breaking Bad or The Sopranos. We want to be transcendent. We consciously want to be transcendent. So you get these situations where the reason that happened with those other shows is because they were slow. 
We were watching them the way we always watch TV, kind of passively. Oh, it's on TV, I'll watch it. Slowly got absorbed with these people's lives and saw this really great writing change everything with this great acting. But now they're like, we need to be transcendent now. <laughs> so like the first episode of The Americans is overstuffed and like the bridge is overstuffed. And I think probably the real apex of television is over. Like I hope I'm wrong about that, but I, I don't think we're going to see, you know, it's almost like what happened in the 70s, but just happened with TV now. Um, okay. Well, hey, you know, I know this is going to seem disingenuous, but it's true. It, like, it, it really blows my mind that this happened, okay? <laughs> that I'm sitting up here and you're all sitting there and listening to me kind of talk about nothing and it seems like you don't hate it. It does make me feel great. I mean, it really does make me happy. I, I know that sounds fake, but it's totally true. I'll never get over how weird this is and I appreciate you coming out. So. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.